Good morning. I, I just got to start off with a confession. Uh, David, I went downstairs to look for water in the refrigerator, and there was this little Diet Coke can. I didn't know if it was yours or not, but it's really good, and I enjoy it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I had to get that out of the way. Uh, <laughs> um. So the scripture reading this morning is in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. If you're able to stand, please, please stand for the reading of God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Be seated. Thank you. This morning, I'm going to focus on one of those verses because there's a lot there. You could probably write a year's worth of sermons. Uh, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. As I was preparing this message to preach, I was reminded of the fact that there are similar, vague similarities between the Christian faith and Satan's worthless imitations. There are a few points of contact between the worship of the one true living God and all false religion. But there are also huge elements of our faith that are distinct. For instance, the nature of God himself as a triune being, calling on the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one God. The fact that the second person of the Trinity became like us in our humanity, fully God 
and fully man. The reality that we can only be right with God, not through our own efforts, as so many false religions teach, but only through the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross, through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. Those truths, along with many others, distinguish the Christian faith from all other false religions. However, there is one concept, one phrase found in scriptures that distinguishes our faith from all others, and the one I would like to put forth this morning, which the Apostle Paul refers often in the scriptures. It's the phrase, in Christ. This idea is unique to Christianity. Buddhists don't talk about being in Buddha in this sense. Muslims never talk about being in Allah, but the New Testament teaches that Christians are in Christ. Sadly, some Christians today don't realize what it means to be in Christ or have any idea how fundamental it is to their Christian life and experience. In reality, this little phrase, in Christ, describes the very heartbeat of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. John Murray writes, Union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. In other words, if you don't understand this central truth, you don't understand the salvation that you enjoy every day of your life. John MacArthur writes, God's superabundant blessings belong only to believers who are his children by faith in Christ. So what he has is theirs, including his righteousness, resources, privilege, position, and power, all found in Christ. We all know that verse, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. These writers and so many others were so captivated of the importance of this doctrinal truth. Why? Because they reflect the importance that Scripture gives to it. Paul uses this phrase, in Christ, or in him, or in whom, 164 times in his letters. 36 times in the book of Ephesians alone. This little but absolutely crucial phrase introduces us to the biblical doctrine of union with Christ. We need to understand this doctrine and have it before us every step with our walk with Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have a new identity in Jesus Christ. We have a new position as adopted children of God in Christ. We have a hope that is unmovable in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are new creations in Christ. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We have been justified. We have been sanctified. And one day, we will be glorified in Christ. This morning, I want us to look at this truth together. I want us to remember why this is so important to us as believers, that we are in Christ. 
I want us to know what it means to be in Christ and how it applies to us in our Christian life. So I would like us to consider two aspects of our union with Christ this morning. First, I want us to consider the meaning of the phrase itself. And before we try to define it, let's clarify what it's not. Because there is a lot of confusion today about what it means to be in Christ. First, it does not refer to the natural, non-saving union of all of life to the life of God. Many false religions quote Acts 17, verse 27, as a proof text of this. In that, in that passage of scripture, we read these words. Paul is speaking on Mars Hill, and he says, God is not far from each one of us. Remember the context here. He's talking to unbelievers, and he says in verse 28, for in him we live and move and exist. That's true of all of life. The only reason anybody on this planet, any life form is sustained is because of its connection to the life of God. This is the doctrine of common grace, which all of God's creation experiences by his grace. This is not what Paul means when he says we are in Christ. Secondly, union with Christ does not mean that believers come to possess all the all of Christ's attributes, including the divine. This is a heresy taught by the word of faith preachers in the charismatic movement. You'll hear them talk about becoming like God in the sense of sharing in his unique attributes, becoming like God himself. This is the name it, claim it preachers that are on television. This is heresy and not what is what Christ what Paul means by being in Christ. Thirdly, being in Christ is not the same as being in the church. This is an error that the Roman Catholic Church teaches, that union with Christ comes from our connection to the mother church, and that union is transmitted through the sacraments, particularly in Roman Catholic theology, through the Eucharist. That's not what Paul is talking about. So what does being in Christ mean? Please turn to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 6. John 6. And let me show you several times where our Lord mentions this truth. In John 6, verse 56, God's word says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And by the way, the context here has nothing to do with the Lord's table and nothing to do with the practice or belief in the Eucharist. This is an illustration of believing in Christ to eternal life. Go back a few verses to verses 47 and 48 in chapter 6 where God's word says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Then in verses 53 through 55, he talks about eating and drinking of his body and blood where we gain eternal life. So we, so we need to understand what he's talking about here. 
A true believer is one who becomes, who comes to believe in him, and that belief is described as partaking in the life of Christ. He says of that person in verse 56, I abide in him, and he abides in me. Turn ahead to John 14, verse 20. John 14, verse 20. Concerning Jesus' resurrection from the dead, scriptures say this, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, that person bears much fruit. Then in John 17, verse 21, he says, That they may know that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are, on, are, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So you get this relationship between Christ and us. It's like that of him and the Father. We are in him. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me briefly consider several questions with you. First of all, what's a good theological definition of this union with Christ? Most faithful systematic theology books define it in this way. It is that intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people, in which he is the source of their life and their strength and their blessedness and salvation. Another, answer, another question that needs to be asked is, why are we in Christ? How did this happen? Well, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it's initiated by a sovereign act of God himself. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. It's something God did when he called you to himself, when he regenerated your heart. In conjunction with that, God, by his own will, put you in Christ. This is known as positional sanctification, where we are positioned by grace in Christ. That's the title of today's message. And you got to realize there are two major ways this, this word sanctification is used in the New Testament, in case anybody here doesn't know. Um, the first is positional sanctification. It's the heads and tails of the same coin when we are saved by God's grace. We are justified, we are made right with God, and then positionally we are sanctified as children of God. We go from darkness to light, from children of the devil to children of God. There's a major transformation. There's a new identity that we experience when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. When I got saved, that was as clear as day. When I got on my knees and I cried out for mercy and God saved me, I noticed a complete new identity I had before God and my witness among men. Also, there is uh, practical or progressive sanctification. And that's a daily, from now until God calls us home. God is making us more in the image of Christ. As we study God's word, as we pray with others, 
as we have fellowship in the body of Christ, God is slowly transforming us into the image of Christ. That's why it is so important for us to be in God's word, to be in prayer, and to be in fellowship with other believers. But how exactly was this accomplished? Another question that comes to mind, and the answer may surprise you. It was the baptism of the Spirit. Now, if you grew up in Pentecostal or charismatic church, you heard them refer to the baptism of the Spirit as a sort of special gifting by a select few. It only happens to the spiritual elite, and it's connected to speaking in tongues and miraculous gifts. This is a tragic era because Scripture actually teaches us that every Christian, every Christian has already experienced the baptism of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through chapter 14, Paul sets the stage for dealing with the abuse of special gifts and particularly the gift of tongues in the church of Corinth. In these chapters, he lays out a sort of theological foundation for spiritual gifts. In the context of that, he says something remarkable in chapter 12, verse 13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now what he says here is this. By the work of the spirit, we, he means all genuine believers, we, speaking of himself and the Corinthian believers, all without exception, all believers experience spirit baptism. And notice he uses the past tense here. He says, we were all baptized by the spirit into one body. This is something that has already happened. And when did it happen? The day that you were justified and then you were positionally sanctified in Christ by the Spirit of God. It happened at the moment of our salvation. That's why we're never told in Scripture to seek the baptism of the Spirit because it's already a reality. We were all baptized by the Spirit into one body. Now, what is this one body? Turn to Galatians 3. Galatians 3, where Paul further explains. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, he says, All of you who were baptized into Christ. And we just learned that spirit baptism happens to all believers at the moment of salvation. Paul says we are all baptized into Christ. This means he was talking about Christ's body back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. I'm going to read that again, and I'm going to replace the one body with Jesus Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into Christ. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all, we were all made to drink of one spirit. But don't miss the larger point he's making here. It's by the work of the Spirit through a work called baptism. This word for baptize simply means to immerse. When the Spirit at the moment of salvation 
immersed you into Christ. You were placed in Christ. If you're a Christian here this morning, by God's grace and for his glory, you are in Christ. Sinclair Ferguson writes, speaking of our union with Christ, these are not benefits to which faith works up, but blessings which are bestowed upon us the moment we belong to Christ. If we are Christians, all of this is true. You were baptized, you are immersed into Christ at the moment of salvation. You were inseparably united to Jesus Christ, at, and that's what the phrase means and how it was accomplished. But there's a second aspect of this doctrine I want to spend the rest of our time with this morning. And that's the nature of our union with Christ. What exactly does this mean in everyday terms? What is the nature of this union we experience in Christ? Well, unfortunately, we can get only a little help from the Greek language here. Most of the time this word occurs, it occurs with the Greek preposition that scholars uh, agree simply is used of a location. We have been incorporated into Christ. Or you could think of it this way. If you're a Christian, you reside in Christ. In other words, day by day, every moment of the day, we are in Christ. We reside in him. We are positioned in Christ. Scripture defines the nature of our union with Christ as consisting of four great benefits. And uh, if you understand these benefits, you understand what it means to be in Christ. So I felt this would be very profitable for us to look at together, encouraging as a church, encouraging in our personal walk with Jesus Christ. Because we need to have these in front of us every day. Every day we need to understand what it means to be in Christ and Christ to be in us. Because we're not living this life alone. We're never by ourselves. We're never by ourselves. He walks with us. He teaches us. He corrects us. He speaks through our situations in life. There's something very special about being a follower of Jesus Christ. We have a God that is in us and lives through us for his glory and for our good. To be in Christ simply means we enjoy, first of all, the benefit of his continual presence. His continual presence. Now, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit indwells you, right? The New Testament teaches that again and again. And that's how we normally think of the presence of God in our lives. But the New Testament also teaches us that we enjoy the abiding presence of the Lord himself. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because when the angel came to announce to Joseph the birth of Jesus, he says he can be described as Emmanuel, which means what? God with us, right? Remember in John 14, verse 20, which we read a moment ago, he says, I am in you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And then he applies this truth very practically. He says this, Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Paul says, you're in Christ. 
Are you going to take Christ and do that? May it never be. In 2 Corinthians verse 13, verse 5, Paul uh, argue, uh, urges us to test ourselves, to see if we are in the faith. Examine your lives, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. In other words, if you're really a Christian, if you pass the examination, then Christ is in you. And that's why it's a very special time that we have before we, we partake in the Lord's table. It's a time of reflection. It's a time of examination. It's a time to look at our walk with Christ. And if there's sin, we need to confess it. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's a special time. And Paul refers to that self-examination. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who lives, but what? But Christ lives in me. Colossians 1.27 says, To whom God willed to make known the riches of the glory of a mystery among the Gentiles. What's the mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. The abiding presence of our Lord with us and in us is part of what it means to be in Christ. Do you understand what this means practically? Have you ever in your life felt alone? Well, let me tell you with confidence today. If you are in Christ, you will never be alone because you have his continual presence in your life. He will always be with you. He promises. In Psalm verse 23, verse 4, we're very familiar with Psalm 23. We learn that our shepherd king, in which John 10 makes very clear to us in the New Testament, is Jesus Christ. Our shepherd king, he is with us. God's word says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. David sensed the presence of of the Lord. And our Lord in the Great Commission made this promise. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Since Jesus is with you, you enjoy his continual abiding presence. This part of what it means to be in Christ. This truth brings great comfort, but it also brings great accountability. Secondly, to be in Christ means that we enjoy the benefit of a special, unique, intimate relationship with God himself. He's not just near us. He has a supernatural relationship with us. In fact, this relationship is so unique and so remarkable that the New Testament uses the metaphor of marriage. He uses the relationship between a husband and his bride to describe our relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're married here today, you can understand this very clear. Christ as the husband, believers as the bride. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, Paul says, I bethrone you to one husband, Corinthian believers, so to Christ I might present you 
as a pure virgin. In Revelation 21, verse 9, we read, One of the seven angels spoke to John and said, Come here, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And of course, in Ephesians 5, that very, very well-known passage, Paul uses our union to Christ to picture marriage, our marriage union, and vice versa. In fact, let's spend a little time in Ephesians 5, verse 25. Ephesians 5, verse 25. God's word says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Notice he immediately transitions from the human marriage to describing our relationship to Jesus Christ. Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. Here's that image of the bride not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And then he goes right back into the human relationship of marriage again. Why does he do that? Please understand that our union with Christ is not just like a human marriage in every way. Even the best of marriages don't compare. It's not that there's a point-for-point point resemblance between our marriages and our relationship to Jesus Christ. Instead, the point that Paul is making is that God created human marriage in part to illustrate the special relationship between us and the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're married today, there's a great resemblance, and God created marriage to picture our relationship to Jesus Christ. Think about this. In the right kind of godly marriage, what exists? There is a mutual love for one another, right? A devotion to one another. There's a lifelong commitment to one another. That's true in our relationship to Christ. As in marriage, our relationship to Christ is superior to all other relationships. As in any good marriage, he sacrificed himself for us. He loves us with a sanctifying love. He nourishes us. That means he provides for us. He takes care of us. He cherishes us. He's committed to us forever. Not till death do us part, till nothing do us part, because we will be with him for eternity. We are eternally positioned in and to Christ forever. Hallelujah, right? And we in return, like a wife in a marriage, will love him in response. We will submit our wills to him. Marriage becomes this beautiful picture of our relationship to Christ and that fact that God uses marriage, the closest of all human relationships, to picture our union with Christ. This points out the uniqueness and the closeness of this special relationship we have with him. Third benefit we enjoy that helps us understand the nature of our union with Christ. 
is our relationship with Christ in which he is our personal representative. We're not in this alone. We can't stand before God on our own. We need a representative. We need the sinless son of God. This is absolutely fundamental to understanding our union with Christ and to understanding how God sees us. By an act of divine reckoning, God permanently considers Christ to stand in our place, to be our representative. This is, in one sense, which we are in Christ. He is our representative. Whatever Christ is, God sees us as. Whatever Christ does, God sees us as doing. Now, the closest example I can get to this is here in our country, we have representative government, right? We select, we choose representatives. Well, we kind of choose them. We don't always get the ones we want, but we do choose them. And then we reap the benefits of their good and wise decisions when they make them, but we also suffer the consequences of their poor decisions. They act as our representatives with the rest of the world. The same is true in the spiritual dimension, except we don't choose our representatives spiritually. God chose them. Who was our first representative that, that, uh, for every one of us? Our first re- was Adam, yes. We were, as Paul describes in Romans 5, in Adam. That was our union before Christ. We were united to Adam. He was our representative. He stood in our place. He made the decisions for us, and we reaped the consequences of his decisions. And we we were considered guilty because of Adam's choice. We received the moral condemnation that got passed down to Adam's descendants. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, God's word says, in Adam all die. And we know that's not physical death, that's spiritual death. But for those whom God set his eternal love, God gave us a new representative. He gave us Jesus Christ. Christ is the perfect representative. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 goes on to say, In Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Brothers and sisters, do you know Christ became your representative? And he began to represent you in eternity past. In Ephesians 1, verse 4, Paul says, God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. His his relationship only intensified when Christ became one of us and lived here on this earth among us. Through his sinless earthly life of Christ, God considered him to be our perfect representative. In the same way Adam was flawed as a representative for us, so all that Christ did while he was on this earth, God counted as if we did it ourselves. This is what they call the imputed righteousness of Christ we have received by faith. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writes, In him we have redemption through his blood, that is, through his death, the forgiveness of our trespasses. It was through our union with Christ that our sin, our guilt, 
our shame could be justly accredited to him and God could judge him, his only beloved son, for our sins on the cross. It was also because of our union with Christ that we can receive his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, God made Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we may become the righteousness of God. How does this take place? Just as we were united with him in his death, we are also united with him in his resurrection. In Romans 6, verses 3 through 5, and verse 11, we read, Do you not know all of us who have been baptized, right, who've been immersed into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death? You were connected with him in his death. Verse 4, Therefore, as a result of this, we've also been buried with him through baptism into death. By the way, there is no water in this passage. Water baptism, just a little side note, pictures this spiritual reality. When we repented of our sins, when we believed on Jesus Christ and confessed him as Lord and Savior, we were united with Christ in his obedience to the Father on this earth. When he died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried with him. And when he was raised from the dead, we were as well. This is how God thinks of us because Jesus is our representative. Notice in verse 5, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly, absolutely, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. The old self was crucified with him. Look at verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Do we understand that because Jesus is our representative, when Christ died in the mind of God, we died with him. The old person that we were, Christ paid the penalty that that sin deserved and paid our debt to God. He became our substitute. He stood in our place. But if you think it stops there, there's even more. It's, it's this amazing grace. Scripture teaches us in Ephesians 2, verse 6, the Father has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. You see, we're united with Christ as he accomplished the work of redemption 2,000 years ago. He was our representative. And because of that, God sees us as having lived his perfect life of obedience to him. We are perfect law keepers in Christ. So how can God credit us the righteousness of Christ? It's because he was our representative. God sees us as having endured and satisfied his justice and his wrath against our sins because Christ accomplished it on the cross for us. Romans 8.1, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His punishment is our punishment. His resurrection, our resurrection. His righteousness, our righteousness. And when Christ left this earth, he had earned all of those blessings of salvation for us. How rich we are in Christ. 
This is the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just want to stop here for a minute. I want to recognize those among us here and those listening who have lost loved ones, sons, daughters, husbands, wives, serving this country and giving their lives so we can have these freedoms that we enjoy. And I know this Memorial Day weekend, <laughs> the weather really didn't cooperate, but you know, in, in, a, in a good way to look at this, it gave us time to reflect on the sacrifice and the love that so many people that God puts in their heart to give their lives for us, to go in foreign lands and to serve us and to protect the freedoms that we enjoy. It's sort of, you know, that verse, be still and know that I am God. Well, this weekend has been be still and know that there are people that give their lives and sacrifice everything to protect us and our country. And on a larger sense, it causes me to picture the gospel, the great love and sacrifice that Christ had for us, that he, he enjoyed the glory and the praise and the worship in heaven as God, and he took on flesh. He became one of us, and he lived among us, and he suffered, and he was buried, and he rose again for us. Because he loved us, he took our sin and our guilt and our shame on the cross. He was sinless, he was perfect. He didn't belong up on that cross, but he did it because of us. Because the only way that we could ever be right with God is through Jesus Christ and on the cross for our salvation. There is nothing we can do to earn favor with God. And it, it causes us to worship him. It causes us to praise him. It causes us never to forget like our heroes that gave their lives for this country. We can never forget what Jesus Christ did for us. This is the union we have with Jesus Christ. It needs to be with us every step of our Christian life. And so it is only through God calling us to himself, regenerating our hearts, responding and saving faith, that we become a beneficiary of all that Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. That's when it was applied to us. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Think about this, brothers and sister, sisters. God never sees us apart from his only son, our representative. That gives me confidence. That gives me security in my faith to know that no matter what happens in my life, the day I stand before God, he's going to see his son the righteousness and the obedience of his son, that he loved me and he took the, 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 the debt that I owed God and paid it in full and didn't leave one drop for me to have to earn. It's all in Christ. Now there's a final benefit that describes our union with Christ and it's called our vital connection to Christ. Scripture pitches this for us in several ways. Let me give you two images. I won't take the time to turn there, but just remind you of at least two of them. First of all, Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter chapter 2 describes our connection to Christ that is our cornerstone and foundation and us being the building or the living stones placed on him. Picture here that Christ is the source of our stability. He provides the strength for our lives and the foundation of our Christian lives. 
Secondly, there's an image of Christ as the vine, or you could say the trunk of the vine, and believers as the branches. Jesus says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you know what God is saying? Our spiritual life is sustained by our connection to Jesus Christ. Our spiritual growth, our spiritual fruit flows from us from Christ. He is our vital connection. This union with Christ, this connection to Christ, is not an experience to be sought out. It's a reality to be understood. If you're a Christian this morning, you are spiritually united to Jesus Christ. Now, because of this vital connection, this life-giving connection, being in Christ, comes with a host of rich spiritual blessings. In fact, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, every spiritual blessing you enjoy is in Christ. I'm going to rattle off a few of them here. There's so many, it's unbelievable. 1 Corinthians 1, 4, grace is given to us in Christ. Ephesians 2.10, we are created in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we receive the righteousness of God in him. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption and forgiveness. 1 Corinthians 1.30, you are in Christ who became for us sanctification. 2 Timothy 1.1, eternal life is in Christ. Romans 8.39, nothing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28, we are one body in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.19, his promises are yes in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.22, in Christ shall all be made alive. And finally, Romans 8.17, we will be glorified with him. What could be more practical to your Christian life than our union with Jesus Christ. It encompasses everything from eternity past to glorification in eternity future and everything in between. Why? Because God never thinks of you apart from your union with Jesus Christ. He will never treat you differently, therefore, than he would treat Jesus himself. Now, the practical use of our union with, with Christ is immense. Let me give you a couple thoughts in today's application. Understanding our union with Christ, first of all, provides security in the gospel. So many people struggle with assurance of their faith. Even though they have repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ, they still struggle with doubts and insurance of insurance. Listen, do you understand what Paul means in Ephesians 2? that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. It's certain. It's secure. Will God ever successfully allow Christ to be accused or condemned? Well, the answer is no, of course not. Then he will never allow those who are in Christ to be accused successfully or condemned because we are in Christ. Next time you hear those little whispers in your ear, from the evil one, whispers of doubt, whispers of insecurity, whispers of anything, shut them down. You are in Christ. 
You are a child of God. There's nothing, nothing that he is saying that is true. Secondly, our union with Christ encourages and promotes our sanctification. Here's how John puts it in 1 John 2, verse 5 through 6. By this we know that we are in him. How do we know if we really are in Christ? The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same way as Jesus walked. Do you have a proper understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ? Do you love one another and walk in obedience to Christ? Do you remind yourselves of the gospel every day? Thirdly, our union with Christ is transforming, right? As the branch bears fruit, right, it bears the same fruit as what the vine is. So if you're in Christ, the fruit of Christ comes out of your life. Fourth and finally, and I'm going to close on this. Sorry, I got a little carried away. I have a habit of that. Our union with this truth is so unbelievable. I, I, you know, oh. our union with Christ fills us with what? It fills us with praise, right? This is where Paul goes to the beginning of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be God. Praise God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. There's nothing else we need. When we truly understand what is ours because of our union with Jesus Christ, his continual presence, our vital connection, our special relationship, the reality of his power in our life, him being our representative before God, when the Holy Spirit applies these truths to our hearts, it fills us with praise. Brothers and sisters, we have been positioned by grace in Christ. 